This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with coach developer for the English FA, Jeff Noonan. He discusses his work around game variation and why this is so important as part of a games programme, why he loves working on finishing the attack and how clubs can develop this moving forward, as well as his time at Fulham and what made the culture so unique. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with as many people as possible. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Jeff, thanks very much for jumping on. Um, obviously, we, we've been back and forth a little bit regarding doing this and, and whatnot. Um, how are things with you at the moment? Are you all safe and well? Yeah, thanks, first of all, for, for having me on. It's uh, it's an honour and a privilege to do this. I, I don't normally do them. Um, I sort of try and stay under the radar a little bit and just get on with my work. But, yeah, I think you've asked and asked, so here I am finally. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we had enough calls when you were helping my A licence and I thought you'd be an interesting guest to get on, hence why I badged you a little bit, but I think it would definitely be useful. So, um, obviously, I'm relatively aware of, of a lot of the work that you've done and what you currently do, but for people that maybe haven't come across all of your work or what you do now, do you just want to give like a brief summary, I guess, of some highlights of, of your career and then what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and put sort of 30 years into about a minute just for people aren't falling asleep really. Um, so I started off way back in the early 90s as a, a football in the community officer which really those, those programs developed into foundations now at clubs and I think that's where you always learn or people who talk about that time you learned about the coaching craft. You were, we were going into schools doing soccer schools after school clubs birthday parties group management behavior management so I did that for a long time, probably for about 10 years. And I started to manage people as well and manage a program. Um, I then moved into academy football um, and also coach development, working with the FA part-time as a tutor. Uh, so for the last 20 years, I've worked across, I started actually at Crystal Palace as a part-time coach in a development centre there, uh, before then moving to Fulham and worked there for about 12 years initially part-time as a as an age group coach then as development centre manager and then through various different roles in the club um, finishing as um, a coach developer but also managing the nines to 14s program and then for the last seven years coming up I've been at the FA as an FA youth coach developer and the aim of this program is really to develop and support coaches who are on FA courses but also working in clubs generally in, in the academy system. Uh, so I look after four clubs. Uh, we'll go in and, and watch coaches work in situ. Um, and I think the beauty of this job is, is that I get to see the whole coaching process for coaches working with the group from the pre-session preparation, the discussion beforehand, through to actually watching the full session and then with the follow-up discussions and what that entails. Um, and I, I've still got some friends who sort of laugh and joke with me about, I think my time at Fulham, I was probably a bad coach developer because I would, I was so busy with various roles, but I would go out and watch part of a session. I'd watch the middle 20 minutes. I'd ask some questions. I'd probably make some comments on it. 
but it was very sort of non-context specific. I didn't know what they were working on. I didn't know some of the background of what they were trying to do. Um, so I think that's why now I really appreciate the job of that I'm in of watching full sessions and trying to get a feel for the coach and the group that they're working with and, and where they're at in their week, their month, their year, and where and also where the coach is at in their journey as well. So I think it's really interesting there. You mentioned two things that was touched on is I guess the context, as you've alluded to, around what that what that coach is delivering, and also the feel for them as an individual or the feel for the group. So if we start with the context, why do you place such an emphasis on the context that they're working in and maybe the group that they're working in or where they are in their season, where they are in the group? Why do you think that's so important? I think it's massive. So if I come into a group um, and, you know, the, the coach has got some challenging stuff going on with the group, it might be behaviour management, it could even be parent management, um, it could be he's getting three or four players that are playing across different age groups down up, um, it could be he's got a big group size, it could be results, and I know we always talk about in academies that that might not be a major factor, but... <clears throat> that can affect the training dynamic of the group. If he's coming off like a really difficult game or, you know, they're very buoyant because they've come back from a tournament abroad and done very well in it. Um, and also then I think the dynamic of the coaching partnerships as well. And I think this is quite a new area that within the FA we've started to look at in the last probably five or six years. But how does the coaching partnership work together? And that's very contextual as well. Um, so I think that there are so many factors that go into one session that the coaches have to consider that that I try and become aware of that help me understand what's going on. I think what's fascinating around that as well is obviously what we're discussing there is purely football related, but you can actually start adding personal stuff as well. So you don't know what the kid's got on in his home life or even what the coaches have got going on in their home life, if coming up to a wedding or if they've got problems at home or whatever that might be all of that can be very challenging in a group dynamics. I think it's really interesting that that's your first point, um, almost to have a look at what the context is before you then start trying to support. And when you're discussing about trying to get a feel for the coach, what type of things are you looking for? Um, and how do you kind of get a feel for what they are as an individual? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of our themes that, that we speak about as an FA group of staff and uh, one of my bosses is massive on it, and he, he he's so right on it, is about relationships. So about understanding the person first. So, you know, people will always talk about understanding the player first as a person. You know, where do they come from? What's their background? And I think that's probably been a thread of our FA Advanced Youth Award about recognising the person and connecting with the person first. So I try and do that with the coach as well. Um, so some of the questions that I've asked in the past about who has influenced them, like what's been their journey as a player and as a coach to get them to the point of why they coach the way they do. Um, so if they've experienced something 20, 30 years ago on an FA course that might have influenced them positively or negatively, sometimes that can have an effect on some bloke coming in with a camera and trying to record them with an FA badge on. And I've, I've experienced that in the past. So building that relationship first and I think getting over those hurdles of people sometimes say, have you come in to assess me? 
but actually I think the words we try and use are support and observe as well and it not being deemed you know it's an assessment today um, it is ongoing assessment as part of an award but actually now we try and see people a number of times in a number of different contexts so even I think down to the match day support visits just to see how a coach behaves on a match day is key and I, I remember working with you in a tournament and actually that was great because in three or four tournament games, you get three or four different experiences. Um, and actually seeing that on one day and how that unfolds is really interesting. Yeah, I, to be honest, I, I've had good experiences with, with uh, my, doing my badges and I've had some not so good ones. So you, I'll be yours was one of the better ones. And that tournament that you're alluding to for me was very interesting because I think that it was different levels of challenge throughout the day. And I think what you're saying around the context, there was a lot of context behind what was going on that day, which made the players change in certain ways. And then obviously my behaviours and stuff were changing around that. But I guess the key thing you highlighted for me from a personal thing was just being aware of if you're changing and why, what's the context behind doing it. So if you're going quieter for a period, is that deliberate or is it not deliberate? If you're supporting for a period, why are you doing that? And um I think, yeah, as you said, that's, that's a really interesting point as to, as to why people do that. When you're looking at unique experiences or someone you've worked with who's had something that's really kind of stood out to you, is there anyone or any particular coach that you've done this initial kind of feel-out process with where you've gone, actually, this is a really interesting journey or a really interesting story that will challenge you as a coach developer? Yeah, I think just, just to go back a stage first, actually, in terms of the bit about your experiences on courses. And I think it's interesting how we have shifted as an FA now about historically. I remember being on courses as well, doing my, my old full badge years ago about being told you have to do this, you have to do that. And it was really a, a principle of tell you have to coach in a certain way. Uh, and I remember delivering a session and asking some questions um, and the tutor assessor at the end said, you just need to tell them. Um, and he recognised actually my background in terms of teaching and working with younger players. But I think we've shifted so far from that point. We've, we've come a long way. And I think you said it, the question of why now, why are you doing it? And the rationale behind it is key. And I think that I describe it as quite a nice, healthy tension between three three views in which a coach might work and this, this sort of push-pull. So I think you have a club philosophy and a club methodology. So the coach is working within that system and structure where the, the club wants them to deliver in a certain way. The coach might also have as well, though, his own principles, beliefs, guidelines that he works to that the majority might fit with the club, but some might be different. So there's tension there. And then I think probably where we come in is we create a triangle where <clears throat> we have a way, which is our FA DNA way of how our teams at 15s and upwards work and run. And we share those principles on courses and in conversations, but it's, it's a way, it's not the way. So we put stuff on the table and I think it's then the, the sense-making bit of the coach to wade through the club view, your own view, what the FA might be be saying as well. And I think that's the challenge sometimes, that there's so much out there that 
coaches can drown in it. And actually, we try and help coaches get some clarity on it to, to keep it simple on that stuff. Yeah, I, I, using my personal example, I don't mind sharing this. So the, the bit that I got challenged on was um, I was doing switch of play as a topic and I, I decided to kind of go into your traditional four and switch out from there. Um, and, and the person who I was involved with, I won't say their name, said they wanted to see kind of a Beckham to Heskey full width pitch switch. And I, I didn't challenge it, and I kind of wish I had now. But in my head, I was like, but the players I work with can't do that. Yeah. Like, how many people in the world have got the range of David Beckham being able to go from A to B on a big cross field switch? And that was one of the things I got challenged on during my final assessment, all that type of stuff. So I think that, as you said, providing the context there, because if it was more as it is now, and you said to me, well, why didn't you do the big cross field one? It's like, well, my players aren't capable. Like the, the people I'm working with aren't capable of doing that. So I'm catering my session to their ability. That's actually in terms of coaching methodology, you, you're understanding and analyzing your group and then putting on a session to incorporate that. So I think it is, um, yeah, it is it's very interesting. But I do like your framework of what you said there in terms of it's not the way, it's a way and just challenging people on different things they do and, and why they act in that way. Um yeah. yeah, and I think that, that player capability is massive. That's why I love the in-situ visits now, because kid, players are brilliant. Kids are brilliant in terms of coaches will come up with certain rules for games and the kids will do something that the coach completely didn't foresee happening and they might defend in a certain way or find a way to bend the rules. And that's the beauty of watching coaches work like that because it, it's real and the kids bring real challenges to it. Yeah, and you always, I find, when you work with different groups and you'll have this being from different areas, they all bring something unique. They all bring something different from where they've grown up or the people they've trained with previously or, or their background. You know, I think it's really interesting to see the way the kids' dynamic can then affect a coach. And if you put a coach from Southampton, for example, and plot them into, I don't know, Crystal Palace or a Tottenham or whatever, be a very different challenge and I, I sometimes wonder how how coaches would reflect if you did get put in that environment how would your language change how would your manner change how would your content change to stimulate and adapt to the, the kids that are in front of you I assume you must see quite a lot of that in your job being from different teams etc yeah definitely I think there's a real sort of socio-cultural dynamic going on within the region in which the players live and travel to the club and then also the the way in which different clubs play and also the cultural dynamic, I think, of what goes on in that area. So if some areas are, you know, certainly in London where kids have had a culture of street football and trying to do skills and be skillful, is that more evident in the players that then arrive in the academies with, with what they bring to it? Um, and I've also had a bit of a view on this and I, I don't know if it pans out or not, but I think sometimes the size of the areas in which we train um, also really impacts on either the player that comes into the club or actually the player that then that practices in that dynamic. So I was at a particular club at the time that had um, limited space. We had two small-sided AstroTurf pitches, and I think that affected the dynamic of the types of practices we could do and probably the skills that came out from the players as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and particularly 
if you look at it from a talent identification point of view, if you bring in, say, an under-11 who's very big and ta- powerful but technically not the best, and then you're playing him in a very tight, congested area, actually, you might not be seeing the best of that individual because you're, you're taking away what might be a super strength, which is his athleticism. So um, I think that's a really interesting viewpoint in terms of during those eight weeks uh, a talent identification, our, our trialists or whatnot are given the opportunity, and uh, even assigned players, to work in different area sizes, different types of techniques to try and see maybe what their super strengths are and maybe, again, what areas we need to help them develop in as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that would come into the, the variation part of it. We've um, we've presented some stuff on courses about the three Vs and we actually talk about the games programme, but it could be applied to coaching as well. And the, the three Vs for the games programme are the volume of games. Are we playing enough games? Too many, not enough. Um, the variety of games, but also the variation of games. So the variety could be big pitch, small pitch, five aside, seven aside, nine aside. But actually, the variation of games is a third category that I quite like, which is about <clears throat> is it always the same type of game? So is it always a play out from the back game against a high press? Or actually, is it a different type of game where a team goes into a low block, a team plays more direct? So I think, first of all, exposing your players and your coaches to, to that um, and your trialists allows you to see players who might show different things in different in different conditions. And where did that block of work come from? So where, when you're looking at the games programme that were in place as part of the ECCP, etc., where did that block of work come stem from and why, why is that something that you're trying to, I guess, analyse with the clubs that you're in? Yeah, it, I think it was a big piece. <clears throat> Actually, my personal story on it started about 2005, 2006. I was lucky enough. I've got a friend who's really well connected at Villarreal and we went over there and their games programme, they were doing anything from 80 to 120 games a year. <clears throat> and I came back and at the time, I think we were limited to 30 games maximum based on the academy rules at the time. I often thought, you know, you can have the greatest coaching system in the world and the greatest coaches, but actually are your players playing enough in terms of games? So certainly something in the club I was in at the time, we we really started to look at game count as a thing and we increased it to a level which we thought was enough um, and we got good volume of games. And then interestingly, when I came into the FA, there were I think those conversations were already happening. We used to do, we still do an exercise where coaches bring into the Advanced Youth Award and share how many games they've played so far in that season. And if, if we do it at the end of the year, I remember the difference was something like 15 games to 50 for the same age group. So clearly, you know, players are going to get better probably playing closer to 50 games than 15. And there's not a, I think the point we're at now, there's not a right number. But actually, we want coaches and clubs to consider it. Have we got enough? Is there enough variety in it? And are we getting different types of games as well? And I think what's interesting for me is around the, the different types of games. So when when we're talking about that, obviously, academy performances is traditionally a lot of pressing from the front and playing out from the back. When you're looking about the differences that we can put in place for young players, 
what are some of the you know the changing factors that we can we can put into that to try and support their learning yeah i think by having a a varied games program so by playing different clubs um different categories of clubs there may even be county games school games across different areas i think those games could bring out a lot of the different strategies so if you play a team who is not as strong they'll probably end up in a low block so that game becomes a lot about you practicing finish the attack which um can be a great thing but actually you may then have some games in your program that are a real struggle and you end up being in a low block yourselves and it's difficult to get out and you can't get your forwards in and i think um there's a particular coach who started to look and track that across a season um and actually do you do you get enough variation in that i think the other area and i, I always praise at this point the premier league games program because i think in the last well, even when i was still in clubs certainly seven or eight years ago i think they were really building a great games program that had a lot of different accessibility for different age groups from festivals which were um less competitive without a final to futsal events to national age groups to floodlit competitions mixed category events so i think what we have got now we've got a lot of variety in that as well and i think that's been that's been a big shift in the last few years plus a lot of clubs now have access to foreign tournaments certainly in the last few years pre covid as well and some of my best experiences the most memorable experiences were often the first game in a tournament and you 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 pick to play against the local team who are the local village team and the parents come armed with hooters and drums and you know 50 of them screaming and shouting and it's an absolute eye-opening experience for the coaches and for the players and you know now and again exposing players to that can be a great experience I was going to say is there one particular tournament or particular example that springs to mind and then I guess off the back of that how do you think being in those environments um affects coaches um in terms of the way that they deliver or support players in, in your experience Yeah I think that the most memorable one and it it was crazy we we went to Lech Poznan um we were invited there it was a 10 team tournament um and it, our first it was five aside indoors on astroturf in a handball arena um and we weren't experienced in tournament football and i just remember the first game being given a real football lesson um and we ended up i think often what's good about these tournaments you find your level so you end up in certain games towards the end of the tournament um but on the sunday the lek poznan fans it was an under 10 tournament by the way but the lek poznan fans all turn up for this sunday morning tournament um and watch their lek poznan game and it's only a 15 minute game but they actually bring flares and there's about i don't know probably 500 to 1000 of them all stood behind the goal singing it's actually on youtube if you look it up um and we were just in that arena looking at that and it was unbelievable so we we sometimes use that clip to prompt thinking about your games program and We're not saying games need to be like that but yeah just different experiences bring different things I think but I I think the final bit of your question 
I think the biggest thing for coaches is is learning how to manage yourself in that. One of the things we looked at, we've done German study visits, um, and the Germans actually have always had national tournaments at 15s upwards. So you can win the national German under 15 competition. And then the coach of that event is often recognized as the best coach and can often go on and get senior jobs. So I think the Germans have produced coaches who have, have been good in that methodology. But actually, sometimes if you do too much of the tournament approach and we need to win these games, do we lose out on the individual player development stuff? So there's a real interesting tension between those, those two things, really. And how do they manage that? Because I'd imagine, you know, if you've got a coach who's, you know, late 30s, early 40s or something like that, and his his ambition is to go and work with the under 23s or a reserve team or potentially the first team, to him, that probably means as much, if not more, than it does to the kids. So how, how from speaking to them, did they go around managing that player development side to obviously wanting to compete and win side? I think that the clubs we spoke to, we went, we went into four clubs and various articles have been written since then as well about their approach. They recognise it a little bit as part of an issue where you have got the, the win at all costs because it helps the coach profile to move onwards. Um, I think in this country, I, I think at the moment we've got a nice balance and a nice tension between developmental football and the normal Sunday Academy game or Saturday or Sunday games programme, but also a really nice sample of you know, more competitive games that might have a trophy or a final at the end of it. And I think where we've got that nice balance, we have to look at now, actually, you know, our players are being recognised. And it, it's interesting because it's probably the more skillful players are being recognised as talents that that the Europeans want to look at. So I think sometimes where we've grown in the last few years and developed, we are, I think we're in a pretty good place with it. And is there any particular example that you've seen working, working in your space currently of someone who's dealt with one of those pressurised situations really well, whereas team's been part of a tournament or part of a high-profile game where he either hasn't or she hasn't changed his methodology of the way that they work or they have, but to the betterment of themselves or the team. Yeah, there's a story actually that one of the coaches um, used to say at Fulham, and I actually wasn't at the tournament, but he talked about freezing on the day. They were in Portugal playing a tournament and I think it was a quarter or a semi-final um, and they played them in the earlier round, so they thought they were going to experience a certain tactical system. Um, and I think this is the beauty of the tournament games, where you've got prior knowledge, you, you're preparing to win that particular game. Um, so they kicked off, but actually the team did something else that he wasn't expecting. And he said, I froze, I couldn't see it, I couldn't solve it. And it was fascinating because actually the assistant coach stepped in and said, look, come on, we need to make some some decisions. We need to make some changes. Let, let's think about this. These are the options. And actually at half time, they had a really good conversation and managed to look at it. So I think those in-game management moments are a real skill set of, of coaches. And we had a, a 23s coach at the time at Fulham and he always said that 
you know, often coaches, that's when they make their money, certainly at senior level. Getting the, the substitutions, the tactical changes right, are a big part of a coach's armoury as you go sort of higher up. So I think exposing coaches to some of those instances can be quite powerful. Um, and it, it, it's great because both of those coaches have actually gone on and done really well in their coaching careers. And so would you say that that is the starting point, working with those, you know, 13s, 14s, 15s age group that are in those types of tournaments, whilst it is obviously a learning experience for the players and they're having to learn how to win whilst obviously playing the right way? Um, I think Ben Bartlett used a really nice thing on this when I had him previously. He said, we want to play our way and win but not win and then play our way, which I think having it that way around is a really nice thing. But do you think that's an important part of a coach's development in terms of just giving them exposure at those younger age groups to, you know, carry on being yourself, carry on doing the things that you set out as a group that you're going to do rather than turning into throwing teacups or effing and blinding at the kids and whatnot? Yeah, I think it's the consistency of behaviours. The we talk about the attachment theory on courses that, that we still attach to the players, we still support them, we're still with them through the ups and downs and all the different challenges. And I think the the in-game thinking, be it in a even in a, a normal academy game, in a tournament game abroad, we we talk quite a bit about do we want adaptive thinkers or do we want routine thinkers? So the, the adaptive expert will problem solve live and, and deal with the problems in front of them. The routine expert might or, or routine thinking might only have a more limited frame of reference. So, you know, if all we've ever done is played out from the back to the defenders, then actually in a pressurized situation, can we recognize different solutions? And that's the more adaptive expert that, you know, we want players and coaches to develop. Yeah, I think that's really, really nice. And I think like, even looking at the Euros just, just gone by, you could see that at points uh, the England team were getting a little bit nervy in the way that they were playing and maybe making some decisions they wouldn't necessarily normally do. So I think it's a really interesting point what you made there in terms of how you adapt to the situation and can you make good decisions whilst also... Um, whilst also being under pressure, et cetera. Obviously, within your role, you're going to get a lot of exposure to different coaches and different methodologies, different teams and their curriculums and stuff. Is there a particular coach that you've worked with that has like a unique way of coaching that really challenged you in the way that you had traditionally worked or, or the way that you'd seen previously? Um. Yeah, I've worked with a few, really. Um, I think the best one, and it, it, he's done one of the best sessions I've seen. So I've actually worked it out. I've, I've been at the FA about seven years. I've probably seen over a thousand full sessions um, close to that. And then my, my time at the club, probably 12 years in the club, I probably saw over a thousand part sessions. Um, but the, the best one I saw, and I'd actually known him previously, and he had... He had had an issue about the FA, interestingly, um, where he'd been involved in something previously and he'd been told what to do and he, he didn't agree with it. But when I watched him work, what he had was just loads of different strategies that really connected well with the players. Um, 
I think initially he's very calm, considered, thoughtful, well-planned. Um, he has great connection individually with players. Uh, so some of the conversations that go on when they're walking out onto the grass, he has good connections there. But one of the best moments of coaching, and you, the reason why I love in situ is I wouldn't have seen this on a course. If he'd have coached on a course, I wouldn't have seen it. But this particular coach, the kids have to jump in a minibus to go to another site. So there's a 10-minute coach, a minibus journey. And what he did, going to the venue and afterwards, he didn't talk to me just generally about football, but he spoke to the players. And he asked them great reflective questions about, you know, where are we in the week? What did you think of yesterday's session? This is what we're going to look at today. What do you think is important about it? Um, and the, the players, and he must have done it a lot because the players were very genuine in being good self-reflectors, peer-reviewing peer each other. And the journey back, he was really comfortable about getting them to feedback about his session. They peer-reviewed each other. He started to get them to, what do you think might the team might be or the shape might be on the Saturday? And I think those coaching moments probably aren't perceived as coaching in a traditional sense, but are the human connection moments that the players were really involved and engaged with it. And, and it was excellent. No, I was going to say, was there anything in particular that they picked out around this session that stood out? Or was it just the fact that they were able and comfortable to give him feedback as to what they felt and what they'd seen? Yeah, I, I can't remember the specific things that they actually said, you know, we needed to do a bit more of this or a bit more of that. But what I do actually remember as well is on another time when I watched him work, the, the other bit that he had a real demand about the expectation. So he, he works with under 18s, but when the performance dropped below a certain level um, that wasn't acceptable to him, he was comfortable about stopping it and then asking questions about what do we need to do to affect this change because you are recognizing and i'm recognizing it's not as good at the moment so the sort of demand for the level of um, performance was there um, but done in a you know not in a traditional way or it wasn't screaming and shouting but it was just in a way where i'm with you on this how can we get better yeah, I guess it's linking it back to that word we, isn't it? What can we do as a group to ensure this gets better? Um, and in terms of a particular session or practice that someone's done that is relatively unique, I remember, you know, when I first watched coaching and were watching some of the chaos practices that were going on that were, um, well, chaos, for lack of a better word, but really insightful for me because I'd never done it growing up. Is there anything that stood out particularly to you that someone set up a practice um, that is really, really different and you hadn't seen before? Um, yeah, it's interesting because I sometimes still do get um, some different stuff that intrigues me and challenges my thinking. Um, I think probably one of the stories on that is actually someone who delivered one of my favourite sessions but put some different twists on it, which really got me thinking. Um, and it's a chap, Mick Lewin, who was working at Oxford at the time. So... One of my favourite games and my bias is, a, is about finish the attack and shoot in and play around the box. So the, the traditional game that we've had on a, a previous version of the level one is diamonds for are forever. 
which is basically a shooting game where the goals are brought in very close. Halfway line might be sort of 12, 15 or 18 yards close together, but lots of chances for players to shoot in a 3v1, a 4v2 uh, situation with lots of decision-making in it. But Mick did some really clever things around the scoring system, but also based on the defending on the blocks and winning it back to then go and score the other way. And I think I'd only ever looked at that practice from the attacking point of view, um, but the the spin on the defending. And I've then actually seen another coach do it um, who calls it the no-block game. So if you have a shot that then gets blocked, there's a point system built into that as well. So, yeah, just some really nice twists and adaptations from practices that, that I like watching. Yeah, I think that's a really intriguing one. And it's something that I noticed a while ago is that when you are doing those attacking topics or sometimes when you're doing certain practices, your attacking players in particular are doing everything they can to get a shot at goal rather than maybe necessarily worrying about the defending topic a little bit. And that's absolutely fine. But sometimes it's about putting a reward system on on those defenders so they've got a real action that they can move move towards. So obviously you've mentioned there that you really enjoy coaching and working around the, the final third. And this is something on, on my A license that you helped me with a lot because um, it's, being a big grizzly defender wasn't something I, I'd done a lot of. So first of all, do you want to talk through, I guess, why why you enjoy coaching it so much much? And then maybe talk through some of the, the basic things you look for in your type of sessions. I know you've done a couple of CBDs with me on this, which has been really interesting. So, yeah, just a little bit of insight around that side. Yeah, and I think just to probably finish off that discussion, which links into this one, is the coach partnerships bit of how coaches might work. And one method can be that a coach works in possession and another coach works out of possession, or one coach works with one team, Another coach works with another team. So I think recognising that now and recognising coaches' views on, you know, if my bias is really about attacking play, finishing, then that's fine. But actually, who I'm working with, what does their eye go to and what are they looking at, which might be really sort of nice complement to work with each other. So I think that's important as well. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I think the coaching partnership side is really interesting, like you said, in terms of what people's biases are. I also think a big one for me that would be interesting to see how this looks moving forward is also what people's personality types are. Because I think that actually, if you can get two people that can work together that are different in their personality types, it actually covers more of the group to a certain degree. Whereas I think sometimes if you get two individuals who are very like-minded, who are very maybe placid and chilled out the kid that maybe enjoys being wrapped up and whatnot he might not get as much that he needs so I think the more work that's done on those co coaching partnerships is, is definitely going to benefit the players more yeah definitely and I think that that's quite a new area of the industry still it's only been in play for yeah probably eight years or so I think so it, it's something that we do look at on courses now about how you work in a multidisciplinary team with the goalkeeper coach, with the SNC, um, with the psychologists who might be around sessions as well. It, yeah, it's really important. Yeah, to keep the goalkeepers over there, the loose cannon session wreckers, aren't they? <laughs> well, that, I think I think that's going to come out in this discussion now about finish the attack. 
Yeah, and, uh, I think I think what I, is pleasing to see is I think more teams are giving keepers an opportunity to play out and pitch a little bit, which, all joking aside, I think is only going to help in terms of playing out and stuff. So if we are looking at trying to put the ball past the session wreckers, what what type of things do you enjoy? Why do you enjoy coaching the attack so much? Yeah, I think I haven't really thought of this, but your question being great because it's prompted me. My, my initial experiences of football were Middlesbrough in the 70s and actually watching them under Jack Charlton. We won the old second division with the record points and it was probably record goals. But I, my earliest experiences, those first few years, were of um, attacking forward play. So there was just to name some names, but John Hickton, David Mills. You know, David Mills was great at running in the half space, at running beyond. You know, some of the terminology now that we use of half space, but you know, he was doing or the team was doing that of some final third player that was great way back in the day. So actually I think that's what really affected my bias on it. And yeah, I just like to see exciting football and I think you know, if I was to coach a team, it would probably be very high-scoring games, but hopefully in my favour. Well, I'm guessing you, you'd be favourable out in Brazil then, because they used to love their old six fours with Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, and Rubinho, and whoever else played and whatnot. So, in terms of frameworks for sessions, when we're looking at kind of finishing an attack, um, what type of frameworks are you put in place in, in terms of for session designs? And what are the kind of the, some of the basic principles you look to include in those type of sessions or would look to include in those types of sessions? Yeah, I think if I, if I can talk about this from a system level first and a bit of a historical perspective and a syllabus level as well, because I think about probably 10, 12 years ago, the FA brought out a book called The Future Game and Trevor Brooking commissioned it. And there were a number of FA staff at the time that wrote it. And I think it had a really positive impact in the game. Within it was a, a playing methodology or a playing style that um, was often used when you asked people about, you know, what does English football need to look like? And the two terms that come to mind now, when you ask people about what was the playing style in the future game book, people would always say, we needed to change English football too playing at we need to be better at playing out from the back and we need to play through the thirds and I always think that pause is where the third bit now could be that we certainly need to think about and we need to be exciting creative and clever in the final third so I think that that pause of Yes, we've spent a lot of time on playing out from the back on midfield play and we play football through the thirds now. But actually, I think partly partly because of the future game and that principle, but partly because of the dominance of Spanish football round about 2008 to 2012, I think, and I was guilty of it in club as well, we all got hung up on possession practices that often didn't have a direction and often didn't have a goal in. So I think that final third play for a while, certainly for a few years in the club I was in, and I think this happened quite a lot around the country, we didn't have as much focus on penetration or possession that penetrates and possession that goes through to score with a goalie 
and with a finish in it. So I think now when coaches or when clubs write their playing philosophy, I would actually challenge or ask the question about why don't we flip the order of how you say things and talk about, you know, we are a club that plays really exciting final third, clever, creative football. And we play through midfield and we encourage to play out from the back with good decisions, which could be into the forwards quickly. So I think the order of the thinking is actually quite traditional in that we work from a list. So often syllabi is written week one, play out from the back week two, midfield play week three, final third play. So actually flipping that order and starting with the harder part of the game allows us to think about it more, possibly embed some messages that in week two and week three we might keep coming back to. Um, and the other bit on it, I think, is that often syllabi will dedicate an equal amount of time to the six phases in the game. So if we divide the pitch into thirds, play out from the back, midfield play, finishing and three defending phases, often clubs might write something that is a week on each. But actually, the harder part of the game, we probably, for me, need to practice more. So actually practicing from our half attacking or the final third could be a much higher percentage of those weeks. That's yeah. a lot there, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think I think it's really interesting. I like the idea of the switch and um, around the, the time spent on it. I'd agree. I think that um, having spoken to different clubs and stuff, people are do, trying to do this in different ways. But actually could it just be we spend more time doing it because I'm sure the players aren't going to moan if, if you're being completely honest when they turn up on a Monday night and they say oh what are we doing tonight and you turn around and say crossing and finishing or shooting or whatever the the standard or the tempo session automatically increases because the kids are really excited to do it um so I mean if you said to them listen we're going to spend more time trying to work on different types of finishing, different types of moves to receive, different types of combination play to get a shot off. I'm sure that they'll they'll be more than happy to do that. Um, and I think what, well, I guess the question off the back of that is how do we get to a point where maybe we are continuously producing players who are exciting in the final third, but also kind of your goal scorers as you said that it's the most difficult part of the game so how can we get it where we consistently produce the, these goal scorers throughout the ages yeah it, it's a great question and it, it's often a question i ask in academies about you know how many players in your system are great you know kids who would have come from grassroots or will score 40 50 60 goals a season um so it, it's a great question that i think as a game we have to put out there I think one there are quite a few things that are interesting on this. There's a particular club that when they designed their indoor AstroTurf pitch, they actually marked out the goals or the, the penalty box areas, not traditionally at the ends of the pitch, but they marked them out on the sides. So what's interesting is that when the kids arrive and you've got some informal play going on and even affecting the goalie, the, the coach's thinking, the players are practicing more around the boxes 
because there's much more play if you're going across the pitch. So the play, the amount of time you're spending around the box fundamentally is higher. And that particular club actually have had a great record of producing more attacking players. So I think the areas of the pitch in which we work week to week, month to month, year to year have a big effect. Um, the sizes of the pitch on a weekend as well. We often look at, you know, is the game just a midfield game? And do we get enough entries into the final third to make it this game where we have got lots of opportunities to score? Or does it become, a, you know, the small, the small players on a big pitch and it's hard to get the ball into the final third so we don't get enough play in there? So the game, you know, the game's programme effect on that can have an impact as well. And I'd imagine coming along along with that point is that with it being the hardest section, if you like, and going into 1v1s, there's naturally going to be a lot of failure in it. Um, and I'd imagine part of the job for you is to encourage coaches to allow players to experience that failure and then develop, particularly if they are your creative 7, 11, 9, 10 or whatever it is and accept they may get it wrong nine times out of ten, but that tenth one is the one where they create something and you score a goal from it and still encouraging and supporting them in and around that journey. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's about the challenge point, isn't it? Because if we set a challenge point that's high, actually that can be great sometimes because players want to problem solve and get some success. Um so I think across a, an evening where if it's a session from the halfway line to attack into a goal, you're not going to get zero goals within that night, I don't think. And I, I keep coming back to the point, sorry, about the coach partnerships, because I think as long as you've got a coach who is working on the opposing team, either on how they defend or how they are playing out from the back, we've still got the other messages and support for the other parts of the game. So I'm not... Th- we're not saying throw it all out with the bathwater and just just work on final third play. You, you've still got ways of working other parts of the game quite cleverly and quite subtly, I think. And so w- when we've done calls and whatnot before, so you've mentioned a little bit around and use the example of like Raheem Sterling in 1v1s and watching where his footwork would go and where his eyes would go and what that means and you kind of questioned a little bit the terminology of of a 1v1 situation. Um, I I appreciate you haven't got kind of one of your notes with you or pictures to be able to diagram this up and whatnot. But do you just want to talk through when when someone like a Grealish or a Sterling or Rashford or whoever it is receives the ball in that wider area, what type of technical details you're looking at or coaches could look at that would support the player to develop in this area? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've, I've done a presentation on this um, for clubs in terms of, is it a 1v1 or not? And if, is there ever a 1v1? Um, and one of my previous colleagues always used to throw the challenge out and say, actually, there is never a, a true 1v1 because there is always a 1v1 with decisions. So the constant decisions of what I'm doing against you is impacted by another player, by the goalkeeper, by a recovering defender. So so fundamentally, if we looked at a player receiving the ball, I often talk about what is their, their before action 
to receive the ball? What's their movement to receive? Um, and within that as well, it, it's been interesting recently looking back at the Euros about how many players have got a pre-receive fake. So how many players, as the ball comes in, just has a little hesitation moment or a body fake as the ball's rolling in from a passer? So there's a passer-receiver relationship that's important. Can we fake on it or get our body orientation in a good position? So that's all the sort of before action movements. And then once you're on the ball, what are your decisions? So it might be an immediate pass. It could be around the corner with the outside of the foot. It could be some disguise on the ball that is immediate rather than I'm going to run at you. So that the constant scanning and decisions are important. So I think the danger of if we do a pure, well, the outcomes for a pure 1v1 are mechanical action and, and decisions about where your feet are in relation to mine and where the ball is. But I'm not having to, to be aware or scan for any runs, any decisions, where the goalie is. So I'm, I'm the focus is narrower. And actually, that can be fine if you want those outcomes. If we increase the complexity, so if we, it is a 2v1 or a 1v2, by nature of the constraints, I'm now having to look at and be aware of my teammate or the second defender or the goalkeeper. So straight away, we are increasing what I'm having to think about and be aware of. So that bit about the 1v1 with decisions, I think, is an important part of, of coaching as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like as as you're talking there, what I'm I'm thinking is if you could set up kind of a two the what two v one with an attacker with an extra attacker, but with a covering defender. So whilst the ball may get shifted to one side and he's closed down by your first defender, he then has decisions: does he try and dribble and go past? Does he try and switch to play? Where is that recovery defender coming? What foot does he want to go on? Where's the goalie? So whilst, yeah, he may be technically in a 1v1 situation, he has all those other other elements that, that you discussed. And I think one of the bits I, I took from your presentation that was really interesting was around the, um, well, there's two two particular bits. The funneling off effect of, of, of practices. So rather than it being maybe a, a complete rectangle, funnel off towards goals, which obviously gets you in more towards the goal. And, makes people think about where they're making movements etc but then also the the type of touches that the wide player takes so rather than pushing the ball down the line parallel to the defender can I push it either at them or beyond them where it's harder for them to rotate their hips um, and you know it's a harder movement rather than being able to run alongside you being in a position to actually have to turn and then run and I thought those were two really easy little tips that you can give to players, which is be positive, try and push it past them, not alongside. And with my practice design, I'm going to force you to do that because I'm going to funnel it off so you can't run down the line, um, which I, that was something that I took really, really well. And I'm assuming you've done a re relatively amount of work on. Yeah, I think it's about when when you adapt practices to bring out certain things that you might want to look at and when you don't. And um, 
if we restrict players to certain things, we lose other things that they might do in terms of the creativity. Um, one of my colleague or former colleagues has often spoken about restrict, reward or relate. So actually we might reward them for doing something that we're focusing on, or we might restrict them, or we might just relate it to what they're trying to get better at. Um, so I think playing with those three different conditions could give you different outcomes for what you want. Um, but I think the other bit with final third players, you've mentioned it there about the hip movements and I think the bit about on-the-ball actions now. There are two things on it, really. The two big things are timing and disguise. So some of the great moments in the Euros, I think, were between Sterling and Shaw, where Sterling has slowed down and he, he knows that Shaw's coming on the overlap. He can sense it, detect it, but he's just waited. And then he's given it the reverse pass or the one back through his legs for the Ukraine goal. Um, and that's a 1v1, but he's waited for someone to join in. So timing and disguise are massive parts of it. And it, it might be a reverse pass with the hips. It could be an outside foot pass. So practicing these things and What's been interesting recently with coaches, I think we we often praise those things when they happen, but actually, can we build it in at the beginning and encourage players to try it and be more creative to try it within within the technical practice at the beginning? Yeah, and I think one, one again, leading back to this presentation, one of the things you mentioned was the eye movement of Sterling. So whilst he did focus on the ball and the opponent's feet to see what he could do, you could see in the clips how he flicks his eyes up to see what's going on around him. And I think what you're alluding to there with the, the sure thing that I'm sure as he's dribbling, he's having an awareness of what's coming around. What, where is sure? How far away is he? What speed he go, is he going at? Where are defenders coming from? If you can increase those 1v1s into 2v1s or 2v2s or have external factors, it encourages that ability to be able to get their head up and have a look or flick an eye up to have a look, which are really minute details that actually provide a wider ranging outcome uh, moving forward. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think giving players more exposure to more of 2v1, 1v2, 2v2s and upwards allows those decisions to be made and thinking about who else is in the practice. Um, and I think the other bit on it... you. You mentioned about the goalkeepers. The question I often ask here is, if we do those sorts of practices where we're going into goals with players shooting, the, the traditional model is if, if a goalie is working in, in the corner with a goalie coach, he might get 50 saves in the 30 minutes with a goalie coach and he's got lots of different types of saves and he's had loads of action. But if your best player... Or sorry, your forward players in a practice have gone from something that doesn't have a goal to a skill practice and then into a game at the end. He might only get five to ten shots across the whole of the session. Now, that's interesting then, isn't it, that we've got goalies repeating a lot more of their actions, but actually the forwards aren't repeating as much of their actions, which are important in their armoury. So actually building in practices and joining up the two parts of the work of goalkeeper coaches with goalies in sessions where they're making saves 
and forwards finishing or midfielders finishing, it, the two combined well for me. Yeah, and could you potentially use those strikers in those sessions? So could you cross and go, you know what, for tonight he's not going to take part in the, the keep ball session. Instead, he's going to go across and he's going to focus on this type of finish and we're going to coordinate that with the goalie coach, which I think is a really interesting point. As you said, comes together as a multidisciplinary team. Um, so when I Googled you prior to this, um, I Googled your name and obviously football and stuff came up. One of the things it links quite nicely into what we've just discussed was that apparently the secret to Fulham's success was largely down to futsal, according to this one one article. So obviously a lot of these outcomes do come out in futsal naturally because of the pace of the game and it being kind of 4v4 on the pitch. For you, how much was that an integral part of, of your programme? And do you think that it is a really useful stable for players to be able to get used to some of these 1v1s, 2v2s, 2v1 situations? Yeah, um, it's quite scary what you see on Google, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I can just go back a stage, actually, just to, just to finish off on that final third play, because I think there's something that um, I didn't come up with the idea, but there was a particular coach at Fulham at the time, uh, Kevin Betsy. He came up with the concept of finishing school. We recognised at the time, and I still hear quite a lot of academy coaches say this to me, oh, we played really well today, we played them off the park, but we couldn't finish. And we were getting this message back from quite a lot of the coaches, you know, every week on tournaments and all sorts. So Kevin came up with the idea of um, a finishing school, which was a Saturday morning. Lots of players having lots of goals of repetition of finishing. Um, some was passive pressure. Some was good old unopposed, spinning it in, bouncing it in, throwing it over the shoulder. Goalkeeper coaches worked with the goalies. Coaches worked with the forwards, different combinations, different movements, body orientations. But what we got was lots of repetition of finishes. And I think what's fascinating now, years later, um, you know, when the names pop up for the scorers throughout the leagues on a, on a weekend, it's interesting to see not just forward players, but, you know, midfielders, wingers, even fullbacks who... Hopefully, we've had some sort of impact on ball striking and finishing techniques. And I think the final, my final point on this, which I'm really passionate about, is when coaches say, great strike, great shot, and the ball is struck down the middle of the goal and the goalkeeper saves it sort of chest to head height. And I always say it's actually probably not a great strike. It's a great technical strike of the ball, but it's not a great accurate shot. Um, so more goals, and we know the data, more goals are scored corners by the goalkeeper's feet. So how do we encourage players to be better finishers? Um, so the debate around is he a smasher or a, a finisher? That's always a good question to pose with coaches to pose to players as well. Um, some players have had great careers and been really strong, powerful finishers, and that's great, but also finesse finishes as well. Ruud van Nistelrooy made a good career out of it, didn't score any outside the box, did he? But scored plenty of goals. So I think it shows you that, you know, those type of techniques and different techniques are, are really important for the way, you know, if we're going to produce goal scorers, how you go around doing that. Yeah. 
And so I think to, to answer the question about futsal, um, yeah, we actually, we had it in the programme at the time um, for a good few years and it, it was, um, we did it on AstroTurf and we just did it in the normal mini-sided goals. So it wasn't true futsal per se on the hard court area, but we did use the heavier balls. Um, we developed some practices as well that linked to it well. So uh, we called it an attacking circuit. It started off, a coach, you'll have seen this practice. It's a zero V1. So players stand at the ends of the pitch, zero V1, he attacks. Then the defender comes out, it's a one V1, then into a two V1, into a two V2, three V2. Um, I've just seen it recently, actually, on Twitter that Liverpool do it. I think they start at a 2v1 practice. So those types of fast attacking games, as well as defending, I think are great to bring out decision-making in the final third. And that then built into to playing futsal as a club, really. And at, at the time, the, the Premier League were developing their futsal programme, and we always in, entered into every competition we did. Um, and we, I think the players enjoyed it and the coaches enjoyed it just because the game has speed of thought, um, fast reactions, lots of transitions, a, an increased amount of individual actions. So, yeah, we were we were quite big on it at the time. And so, yeah, I, I think that, as you said, the fast-paced nature of it and the ability to manoeuvre the ball was quite interesting that you said it was on AstroTurf. And I think that sometimes... Um, we say it's got to be inside, but you can get just as many outcomes if you set up a similar situation on an outside pitch and allow the players to utilise that. So obviously w during your time at Fulham, you, you know, you would have seen a lot of players come through and you guys as an academy had a lot of success. Noticeably, you've got the Sessegnon brothers, for example, who have come through. Ryan, I'm hoping, does well for Tottenham this year. Um, as being a Spurs fan with Harry Kane going, hopefully he scores some goals. So, um, what in terms of the players that progressed um, and have gone on to have really very good careers, or you know, in the pro game, what stood out about those players, uh, if anything, and was there anything along, for example, Ryan Sessegnon's journey that stood out as something that you guys implemented? to help him progress during his time with you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I often reflect on my time at there and, and what we did and what would I change? What wouldn't I change? I think one of the first key things actually is, um, and it ties in with your role now, people always say you need good recruitment, but actually um, some of the players that we brought in who've gone on to have great success we weren't in a we weren't in a struggle with with other clubs to sign certainly at nines and tens but actually i think yes it's important but the whole thing about you know the best players at eight nines and tens are always the best players that that didn't pan out um the biggest thing we had i think was the staff we had lots of staff who loved coaching loved working with players and loved being in the, the actual job they were in so we had um, some movement specialists. We had a really good movement program at the time, um, which linked it really well to football. And they were football coaches, but with a real interest and passion in movement. 
And I, I just remember the sort of energy and enthusiasm and excitement of an evening at the sessions. There was, you know, kids celebrating goals. There was excitement. There was noise. There was a, a buzz to it. So staff who loved the roles and had a, an energy and a commitment about them, even though they were part time at the time, because at that time in the industry, a lot of the roles were part time. So I think that was a really big key feature of it. But, you know, there was a real connection between staff and players. Um, I think the games programme we developed was a big key feature of it. Some of the some of the players now who've gone on, they would look at the number of tournaments they would have experienced through the Premier League games programme, but also foreign tournaments. We would have had a big games count of, you know, anything from... 80 back to the 80 to 120 games a year lots of training games that we did of evenings um so we had that we had futsal in the program um we also had i think quite a varied calendar something we spoke about earlier before the call about when do we train when don't we train so for me actually may june and july are great times of the year to train because it's nicer weather you can coach more it's you know, kids are not freezing. So that was a big, big factor as well. Um, so there were, I think there were lots of things that went into it that I look back on. Um, and one of the things on the staff that we had was this, I think people call it the cognitive differences now, but we had people who believed in, you must do unopposed repetition, you must do drills. And we had people who believed in everything must be done in a game. And it was pretty hard managing staff with really different views. But looking back, I think the debate and hopefully people would look back and think, you know, people were allowed to share their opinion and discuss coaching. I think that was key as well, that we could have those discussions about what went on. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and gives quite a holistic view in terms of there's probably a lot of different contributing factors that, that bring success and supports those players, which is um, really, really interesting. Um, is there any particular one moment during your time at Fulham or Palace that stands out to you as like a real good piece of work that was put together for a player, either where they got a strength into a super strength or an area for development into something that they'd had success with. Is there anything that either yourself or one of the other coaches implemented that you were like, actually on reflection, that was an outstanding bit of uh, practition? Yeah, I think generally the IDP work. So around about 2012, the, the audit system came into place and I think we were doing it pre-audit, but we would start to break off and do some individual work with players in, in, in twos and threes. That's not purely individual, but small numbers work. And I think some of the work that was done then with individuals on their, their movement, their receiving, their ball striking, and, and often the two-footedness now. I look at players who've come out and their ability to be comfortable to use their, their weaker foot to get it to a level that isn't a hindrance I think that's been quite powerful now um, and yeah certainly watching players who actually then went through the older age groups at Fulham and decisions were made where they've they've been released but gone on to be successful elsewhere I still you know I look at those with pride that we, we had we had some impact and some support on their program yeah I think that 
those IDPs are only going to become more and more prevalent. And I think that, as you said, allowing players to work off both feet is, is a really good good tool to have. And I know for sure I could have done with it when I was when I was a kid because my left one purely for standing on now. So, um, yeah, and I think, sorry, Matt, there's just a, a discussion on that as well that we now talk about, about is it is it two-footedness or two-sidedness? So actually you might have the ability to to deal with the ball off both sides, but manipulate your body in a, in a good way. So you look at Harry Maguire, who's excellent at bringing it out on his right foot, but he's on the left side of the pitch because of the way he manipulates and moves his body. So that's always a good discussion with coaches as well. Yeah, and I think that you can look at it defensively as well. You look at the first game of the Euros, there's a lot of talk of why Trippier was playing left back. And it may have been to go against Perisic, who cuts inside, but Trippier is comfortable enough to him coming in on his stronger right foot and being able to deal with the one down the line. And I think, as you said there, there's a lot of discussion around are players competent enough to be able to switch into multiple positions? And they, they may be, he isn't going to be as good as a left-back as he is a right, but is he competent enough to solve the puzzle that was ahead of him for that game? And evidently we won the game, so he, he probably was. So, listen, I... I, I we were fast approaching the time that we'd set out for this call. So um, last question for me, and it could be a challenging one, but who is the um, best player or coach? So it doesn't matter which you've worked with or against and why? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't normally like to sort of name check people, but, You've you put me on the spot here, haven't you? Um, I think what's been really nice to see, and um, we had a player at Fulham, and he, he's probably not recognised as having come through Fulham, actually. Um, but we, we picked him up at under-10s, went right through to under-16s, but unfortunately didn't get scholar there. And I think sometimes that, that bump in the road can be the kickstart for players to re-evaluate and, and go again. Um, but... A player called Omar Richards, who's now just gone to Bayern Munich uh, this summer, where just he was a pleasure to work with. He was committed, great desire, wanted to learn, happy to try anything. Um, and interestingly, actually, his positional profile with us was probably a lot more experience higher up the pitch. So played as a 10, centre midfield, left wing. And it's real credit to Reading, actually. They've recognised something in him and he ended up having a good career there as a left back and has now just gone to Bayern Munich. So I think it's interesting that debate around positioning them too early, um, that actually just exposing them in different positions is is really important as well. Perfect. A really good answer. And I'm sure the positional stuff is, is a uh, conversation for another day. But Jeff, really appreciate your time. Loads of really great content there and hopefully... Um, we can catch up for another one of these again soon and I'll see you face-to-face -face down at Staplewoods relatively soon as well. Sounds good, yeah. Thanks for the invite. I've enjoyed the chat and, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you soon. Perfect. Catch you soon.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.